HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Dan Glickberg here from Fairway Market with another delicious Thanksgiving tip. You do not need to serve your turkey piping hot. Let it rest before carving to keep the natural juices inside. As long as your gravy is hot, that'll do. For more Thanksgiving tips, log on to FairwayMarket.com. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. Broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. My co-host and producer is Sophie Schlesinger. Hello. And today we are very excited and thrilled and happy to have Rachel Dutton, who is a Bauer Fellow at the FAS Center for Systems Biology at Harvard University, here to, to talk with us. Um, and just to give a little background about Rachel, I feel like most people in the world, well, a lot of people in the world anyways, when they think of bacteria and mold and gross microbi- or microscopic things, they just kind of think yuck. But Rachel and her colleagues think something quite opposite. They love <laughs> they bacteria love and they actually have <laughs> devoted their lives to the study of it, um, sort of mining these uh, communities of um, microbiological activity. Um, so, Rachel, first of all, thanks so much for taking time out to be on the show. Yes. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into loving bacteria so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my background is that I'm a microbiologist, so I have my Ph.D. in bacterial genetics. And I, for my thesis work, I studied... Um, e. coli and, and sort of basic biology of, of how bacterial cells work. Um, but that was studying a single organism in a laboratory setting by itself. And so I got really interested in um, how that might be different from what microbes are actually doing out in the real world, which is not living by themselves in a lab. Um, and so I, I became really interested in, in studying microbial communities so these 
communities, when I say microbial communities, I'm talking about different species of microbes, so bacteria and fungi um, living together in the same environment and um, thinking about how these organisms might uh, adapt to each other and interact with each other in a real-world setting. That's super interesting. So how, how did you make the leap from being interested in how microbes interact with one another to identifying cheese as a good medium to study this activity? Right. So the problem with microbial communities is that they're incredibly complicated. So if we think about um, the soil in your backyard or um, something that a lot of people are studying right now, which is the human gut, we have probably hundreds of species living together in a very complex environment. Um, And so what eventually I'd really like to be able to do is understand exactly what makes these organisms tick and, and how things work. And so it's really hard to do that in such a complicated system. And so I was hoping to find uh, some sort of environment that would have these interesting microbial communities but is a little bit um, less complex and a little bit more controlled in a number of different ways and simplified. Um, so that I was also really interested in food, um, just personally, I love to cook and to eat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, starting to learn a lot about food and food science, and you know, reading books like Carol McGee's on on food and cooking, mm-hmm. and sort of just made the connection between these two passions of mine, which is microbiology and food, and, and realized that cheese is this amazing um, microbial environment where you are basically, you know manipulating milk in ways to create the perfect environment for a certain set of microbes to grow and transform the milk into these amazing um, flavors and smells and textures that we we love in cheese. Wow. Yeah. It's it's so funny. It's like, you know, and and the thing that makes it amazing is people have been doing it kind of without really understanding it to the level that you do for thousands of years. And to yeah. think now that you're going to start to really dig in and understand how these things all kind of work, or you said, you know, like you said, what makes them tick is really exciting. Um, so I have to, I have to read this, this quote um, that oh, yeah. Sophie um, found, one. because I just really love it. Um, it says, when you're eating the rind of a cheese, you're consuming more microbial cells than there are stars in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just think is is brilliant. Um, was that that was a part of one of your your papers or your essays on cheese? Yeah, it was for a um, um, an interview I did for Culture Magazine, which is um, all about yeah. cheese. And it's it's pretty incredible. We have these photographs of um, using scanning electron microscopy. So you're basically at the the scale of the microbes themselves. So that a typical bacterial cell is only about a micron or two wide. So that's about a million times smaller than we are. Um, So we need these very sophisticated um, uh, technologies in order to just visualize these cells. Um, So we did some scanning electron microscopy to to see up close the communities, and it's just packed uh, full of cells. It's the rind of cheese in particular, which is what we're really... Um, working on in the lab is, I think, about as densely packed of a microbial community as you can imagine. Just cells on top of cells. <laughs> another it's, another quote to that effect that I really liked was that you guys, um, you found that uh, it was an extremely 
or exceptionally cosmopolitan community <laughs> of <laughs> microorganisms, which is a really funny way to think about yeah. it, you know, especially yeah. living in New York City to think that, you know, the microbes are kind of doing what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really fun community, I guess, if you can call microbe community fun. <laughs> it's uh, what we're finding now on the rind of cheeses. So it, this is a, a microbial environment that hasn't really been very well characterized um, we have uh, a lot of knowledge based on culturing techniques that we've been using in microbiology for decades. Um, but we, what we know from sitting in other environments is that you can't necessarily grow all, the, all of the organisms from an environment in the lab. Mm. So for soil, it's something like less than 1% of all of the species that are present in a gram of soil you can actually get in culture in the laboratory. Wow. But now we have sequencing technologies that um, allow us to... So what we do is we take the DNA out of the cells and we sequence small pieces of it. We target this one particular sort of fingerprint-like gene, this particular uh, gene that gives us a sequence that will tell us what type of organism that, that sequence came from. And so we can actually get a snapshot of the entire collection of species that are present in any given microbial community uh, and so we're using this on cheese to just identify what species are there, and we're seeing organisms for that have, you know, are not only found on cheese. They're found in many different environments, like the Arctic Ocean or uh, sort of extreme environments like that, and, and they also happen to be participating in these communities on cheese. Yeah, the, the other two that really stuck out when I was reading um, a little bit more of that article was that um, some of the... Uh, microorganisms that were present had oh, been yeah. found in Etruscan tombs and yeah. Tunisian oil <laughs> it's wells. So crazy. Um, it's really, really incredible. And, you know, what you're saying is also, um, you know, turning on its head, I think sort of some traditional or conventional cheese wisdom, which is that, you know, bloomy rind cheeses are made from penicillium candidum and maybe sometimes geotrichum. And right. washed rind cheeses are all brevibacterium linens. And, um, so you're finding that that is actually actually not true at all. <laughs> no. So, yeah. So for so the bloomy rind cheeses, you know, they're usually inoculated with species. So people put in large amounts of the spores of penicillium. So that, you know, the majority of what you're seeing on the surface is penicillium. But there's probably a much more complicated set of uh, species that are sort of underlying that initial layer. And then for things like the wash rind cheeses, we aren't actually finding brevibacterium all the time, even though that's the one organism that we all know is supposed to be found on washing cheeses. Um, and this has been seen also in a couple of studies in Germany and France where they looked, you know, people are adding brevibacterium linens as a starter culture, but they're not seeing it on the cheese as it ages. It's being apparently outcompeted by the local set of organisms that are making their home on the cheese. And so where do these local organisms come from? I mean, yeah. obviously with milk, you're talking about an environment where there are plenty of microorganisms, but can you talk a little bit about what are some of the factors that influence where this, where these communities come from in the first place? Yeah, so we don't know for sure where they're coming from at this point, um, but my guess is that there's a couple possible sources. One of them is the raw milk, and for the case of raw milk cheeses. Um, and then you can also imagine, you know, once you make the cheese and put it in a cave or cellar to age it, you have microbes in the, that environment that are coming from the air, 
um, and the surroundings that can then potentially colonize the cheese. So, or, you know, maybe if it's even the, the cheesemakers themselves <laughs> that are bringing in their, their cultures. Um, uh, we, we really don't have a good idea at this point where the organisms are coming from. I love it. It's so mysterious. fascinating and cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so, so I just think um, another aspect of your um, work that I think is really interesting, and, and I guess I said it a little bit at the beginning of the show, is that most people just think of all these things and they think, oh my gosh, like danger, danger, like microbes, yeah. bad stuff. And you're yeah. more concerned with what are the beneficial aspects of this and how do they contribute to flavor? Um, right. So I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on that. Right. So I think microbes get a bad rap for sure. Um, I think it's because we only notice them when they're causing problems. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really notice all of the wonderful things that they do sort of in the background. Um, you know, they're important for pretty much every uh, like ecosystem on the planet. Um, and... In food in particular, they play a huge role in all of these fermented foods. So that's, I think it's sort of a fun way to get people a little bit more excited about microbes versus scared of microbes. Yeah. Um, because every, every single culture on the planet has some sort of fermented food. Um, and the role that these microbes are playing, it's, you know, partly in preservation of the food. So the lactic acid bacteria in particular, these are bacteria that produce acid, which um, lowers the pH of foods and and makes it so that many of the things that could potentially cause us harm can't actually grow in the food. So when you make something like sauerkraut or dill pickles, those are through the action of lactic acid bacteria producing acid um, when you're fermenting the food. And then we have all these other foods which you know, in addition to preserving the food, completely transform the flavor and the texture and the smell of of the starting material. So I think cheese is probably the best example of that because every cheese started out as milk, um, which, you know, milk from a cow versus a goat versus a sheep tastes different, but nothing compared to the the variety that you have and the flavors and textures of the final product of the aged cheese. And, and, and many of those flavors and textures are all coming from the action of microbes, whether they're the microbes growing inside the cheese or on the surface of the cheese. They're contributing all of these enzymes and metabolites that they're producing during the course of their growth, and those are the things that we're perceiving as all the interesting flavors of the cheese. Wow. Wow. That's just, I don't know, it makes me smile. I have like a giant smile on my face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the cheeses that you've focused on up until now and, um, you know, sort of what, uh, um, what you've discovered. So we've been spending a lot of time um, up at Jasper Hill Farm because uh, it's a great place that has, you know, wonderful variety of cheeses. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really excited about the work we're doing there. So... We've been going up there, collecting samples, bringing them back to the lab. Um, one of the recent things that we've done is uh, collecting samples during the entire aging period of, of Bailey Hazen Blue. Oh, wow. So this is a natural rinded blue cheese, um, and it forms this beautiful natural rind on the surface. It's not inoculated with any of these organisms that show up 
And so we've been following how the community actually develops over time and what are the species that are present in the beginning versus the end and how does that change and can that tell us something about what are the important factors for how a community forms or the important interactions for how a community forms. Um, and so that's, that's one of the projects we've been doing recently up at Jasper Hill. And, and then the other... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, oh, no. Well, I was going to ask, and do you find there's consistency within, you know, these batches of Bailey Hazen? Um, do you find the same communities developing and changing and kind of, you know, dying off and then forming other communities? Or is each batch kind of its own story? So we don't have enough data yet to really know that. Um, we know that within a batch of cheese, there the communities are very, very similar from wheel to wheel. Um, and we, we do have a couple of uh, data sets for Bailey that suggest that, at least on Bailey, it's very similar over time, the Rhine community. Um, but that may not be the case for other cheeses. I mean, cheesemakers know this, that their cheese is not always the same depending on, you know, many different factors, <laughs> whether it's the season or something about the temperature or the way they made that particular batch of cheese, you can sort of make the cheese go in different directions. Um, so, so yeah, we don't, we don't really know yet, but my sense is that if the cheese looks and tastes the same, probably the microbial community is going to be the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so I cut you off. I'm sorry. Were, you were going to say something else about um, you were studying the aging profile and how things change and then something else? Yeah, and so the other thing we are um, doing in the lab right now is collecting many, many samples of cheeses from around the world um, because we want to do the sort of survey of, of what different species are present on different cheeses on different styles of cheeses, um, how different is the rind community from a natural rind to a bloomy rind to a washed rind, and how different is a washed rind that's made, say, in Vermont versus in France. Um, and so we're just trying to collect as many different types of cheeses as we can right now and profiling what types of species are present in these, in these different cheeses. That sounds like a super fun project. Yeah, I, I could definitely do that lab work, I think. Yeah, it's, the collecting samples is fun. We just went to Italy to the Slow Food Cheese Festival in Bra. So cool. Where we had access to all these amazing and interesting cheeses that we would never see in the United States. Um, and a lot of raw milk cheeses and a lot of just very traditional cheeses and... Um, did Processing any, the samples is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. How did you get it all back here? Did you have any have any trouble getting any cheese from outside the U.S. to, to the lab? Yeah. So we, we were pretty certain we wouldn't be able to get the cheeses back to, into the U.S., at least not everything. We collected about 200 samples. Wow. Um, so we worked with a collaborator at the University of Parma, mm -hmm. and we actually took all of our samples there first and extracted all of the DNA from them and, and shipped oh, that back Oh wow, yeah. crazy! That's way that's way smarter than just yeah. crossing your fingers <laughs> yeah. and hoping that the dogs don't smell it. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been a pretty stinky piece of luggage. Yeah, yeah. And so, can you tell us what were some of the most interesting cheeses that you saw? You know, just on the outside from from your trip to Italy. What were some of the weirdest and most unusual or fun? Yeah. So the the have a couple of 
cheeses that really stood out. One was was a Italian cheese made in the Piedmont region, and it was called I think Montebore, and it looked sort of like a birthday cake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it had like this three tiered layers of hmm. of different sizes of cheese, and then it was a nat- completely natural rind early on. You know, a couple weeks or month old, it looked like a very um, sort of the wrinkly geo rind on the surface. Mm-hmm. And then it started, they had different ages. And as it aged, it started to dry out and flatten out and uh, get sort of this reddish orange rind on it. And then later on, it got even more flat and started to look like like a cow pie and was brown. <laughs> <laughs> and this was the intended affinage. Yeah, apparently I was I was pretty shocked because we would never see anything like that in the U.S. And I was talking to the people who were going to the stand and asking them, is this typical of the region? And one woman I talked to said, oh, yeah, you'll see this in the shops around here and people buy it all the time. And Not just for birthdays. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that one was pretty interesting. And then there was another booth there where they had all of these little tiny cheeses that looked like biscuits or bagels or crackers or you know they were just wait I've seen that guy was he he was from the Aquitaine region yeah yeah and they uh you know they're just like these dried out little cheeses that I think were probably covered in cheese mites um and they had them up they were like two to five years old and it was kind of incredible that they were still you know they, when you sliced into them, they actually looked and tasted like cheese. <laughs> I brought one of those home with me, yeah, in 2009. <laughs> and I think it sat in my refrigerator for another, like, six months. Because I yeah. was just like, well, I don't know if today's the day I want to yeah. eat it. They're I know. pretty it intense. Was, it was pretty intimidating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really amazing. Um, so I was wondering, how big is your team? Um, and how long do you f- see? what? What's kind of the scope of this project? Yeah. So um, I have two postdocs working with me um, in the lab. So it was a pretty small lab. And we, I have five years here. Um, so it's, you know, a decent amount of time to, to get this research going. But we really are in the early days right now. So we have a lot of work still to do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so you were talking a little bit in the beginning of the show um, that there were some other people doing similar research, perhaps in European countries or other places. I was wondering right. if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, I was your, gonna, wh- who's your community? Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask that too. And is there anyone else in the in the U.S. doing some some cool research about cheese? Um, so one of the best, I think, cheese microbiology. Uh, bodies of work that that has come out from the U.S. is from Sister Noella Marcelino, so the cheese nun, um, who I'm sure you've heard about before. But She's great. She, yeah. I think, was one of the first people to start thinking about this as, you know, a microbial ecosystem and, and thinking about it more in an ecological context versus just an industrial and applied sense. Um, so, unfortunately, there's not too many people right now, at least in the U.S., doing this sort of research um, in terms of thinking about cheese as a way to learn about biology and a way to learn about microbiology. Um, There's a lot of really fantastic research that goes on about, you know, um, 
pathogens that are present in cheese and, and how to improve the quality and safety of cheese, um, but not a whole lot of basic research. And there's a, a bit more of it in Europe because um, I think there's more funding for doing this sort of work there. That's interesting. And it seems like a little bit more tolerance, too, for the idea of microbes yeah. in general. Um, yeah, possibly. <laughs> um, that's really, really incredible. Um, so do you, do you, do you see yourself um, continuing this, uh, this research after, after the five years? Can you think of like a, a phase two that would be like the dream job? Or <laughs> do you see yourself moving on to a different kind of um, microbial community? No, I love cheese. I, I, I hope to keep doing this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. I think there's, there's enough to keep me occupied for, for many lifetimes. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like it. Absolutely. And so if people want to learn more about your research, um, how can they do that? I, I, the, the article in Culture seems like a good place for people yeah, to start. Definitely. Yeah, there's the article in Culture, and there was just an article in the Boston Globe that Rowan Jacobson wrote. I don't. So Rowan is an author that um, he wrote the Geography of Oysters and American Terroir. So he wrote a really nice article in the Boston Globe about the research we're doing um, wow. a couple weeks ago. And I'm hoping to put a website together for my lab, but I haven't had the time to do it yet. I just, I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't even imagine the intricacy of all the, of all that, you know, the work, the sequencing and everything. I feel like I'm really missing out because I've only seen cheese with the naked eye and, and eaten it. (laughs) <laughs> to take some like close-up photos and you should check out the photo fo- are the photos also part of the culture article yeah there was another i did um uh some i took some images of colonies of from cheese microbes and that was published in culture magazine also so yeah people can find those on the web cool that's really fascinating come up well, um, thank you so much for um, being on the show. It's been a real, real pleasure talking with you and hearing all about this microscopic world yeah. that we all love but don't think of very often. Um, thank you. So I have one final question. So if people ask you, can I eat the rind, what's your response? <laughs> uh, if you like the way it tastes, I would eat it. If not, don't eat it. <laughs> That's Good what answer. I always say, too. <laughs> you heard it from the expert. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. And um, we will be with you all again next Monday for another episode of Cutting the Curd. Yep. Bye. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. Listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network.